Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. You've tuned into a Bully Pulpit special series for Symposium One, which the Hebrew Union College convened in New York City in November of 2016. Symposium One was organized around the theme of crafting Jewish life in a complex religious landscape. We at the Bully Pulpit had the privilege of interviewing some of the outstanding thinkers who participated in Symposium One, and we think you'll enjoy the conversation. It is my tremendous pleasure to welcome my friend, David Ellenson, the Chancellor Emeritus of our institution, the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, and currently the director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. David is a widely, widely known scholar on 19th century Jewish movements and religious history. He joins us today to talk about some of his ideas, and it's really a tremendous pleasure to have you, and I look forward to talking to you. Well, it's a great, great pleasure to be here. I have missed you, I have to confess, these last couple of years, and I'm glad that we're able to be together in this way. Likewise, likewise, and I know we're going to see more of each other soon as well. Yes. Among the themes that you write about, you discuss Jewish religious sensibilities confronting secularization in modern Europe. Right. This is a major theme of your writing. What I'd like to ask you to do is to illustrate this tension that Jews confronted with some telling examples or some symptoms of this confrontation. Okay. I mean, it's a great question. I think actually what led me even to study this type of thing, even related to my own childhood in Virginia, I had grown up in a traditional Jewish home, and yet my family was very much involved in the politics, culture, and life of the Virginia Peninsula back in the 50s and 60s. And what occurred to me was that as I observed virtually all of the Jews, even in Newport News, Virginia, a small community of about five to 700 families amidst 200,000 Gentiles, where the tensions between what I would call a commitment to Jewish tradition and Jewish identity on the one hand, and a desire to participate fully in the larger world on the other. And it is actually what prompted me to engage in these studies. What my studies focus on then is the ordeal, I would call it, and the tensions that marked Jews as they moved from a relatively ghettoized position culturally, politically, religiously in the pre-modern Jewish world. And as I speak to someone like you with your knowledge, I of course am aware that Jews were never as hermetically sealed off from the larger world, even in Europe, as popular images might present. But nevertheless, Jews were part of a non-voluntaristic community to be a Jew in the pre-modern world, granted one his or her status politically in the larger world, culturally. Jews, by and large, were educated in classical Jewish religious tradition. Of course, this means almost exclusively the boys. Girls would have not even attended formal kinds of schools, and their cultural knowledge would have been predominantly Jewish. This begins to change in the late 18th century. Figures like Moses Mendelssohn emerge. But one has to keep in mind that when Mendelssohn, for example, desired to teach Jews, if you want an example of tension, how to speak an appropriate German. He translated the Bible then from 
Hebrew into German, but the Jewish population of 1781, living in today what we would call Germany, could not even read a non-Hebrew alphabet. Hence, his translation of the Hebrew Bible into German is a transliteration using Hebrew letters. The issue for the Jewish community was, how do you take a community that is that's sealed off from the larger environment in which Jews find themselves, suddenly through dint of the French Revolution and the emancipatory movements of late 18th, early 19th century Europe, how did Jews come to be part of the larger world? And so my studies really focus on this question, whether I talk about people who would ultimately become what we would call modern Orthodox Jews, conservative, reform, all of these people in the 19th century, how is it that they began to integrate themselves into Western culture? How did they come to learn a German language? How did they come to read Kant and Goethe in addition to Talmud and Bible? And how does one take this larger identity that is bestowed upon them by the larger world and simultaneously maintain their integrity and authenticity as Jews? In many ways, it strikes me that we had this problem in the country like the United States as our Eastern European ancestors, for most of us, moved into this country. After all, today it's 2016. The Jews are thoroughly acculturated. This seems to be, in quotes, an ancient tale by this point, but the reality is, how is it you move from a Jewish culture that was extremely thick, and how do you become part of the modern world? How do you learn the mores of the modern world? How do you learn what it is to dress in an appropriate Western style? How do you learn manners? All of these things seem to be non-problematic for us today because we're at the other end of this acculturation process. But this really was, and here I am quoting the work of a non-Jewish scholar, John Murray Cudahy, who wrote a book entitled The Ordeal of Civility. Freud, Marx, Levi-Strauss, and the Jewish struggle with modernity. The point being that Jews had to learn how to navigate from this relatively closed world to the larger open world of the West. And let me interrupt at this point. What, what I heard you say, and I know to be uh, a scholarly position of yours, but I, I want you to elaborate for a moment, is that we have to understand all of the modern Judaisms that we know very intimately today right. in America. All of them as equally flowing from the same problem and in that way are fundamentally chronologically born at the same time in the same crucible. Yeah, that is exactly my position. In other words, once Spinoza arises and writes the theological political tractate, and there is separation between religion and state at a neutral or at best and in reality a semi-neutral society begins to be created where people, Jews, can live in the larger world but still retain their identity as Jews, particularly in privatized kinds of sections. The issue becomes how do I create a Judaism that both allows me to participate in the modern world and simultaneously allows me to be in quotes authentically Jewish. The first movement to attempt to do that was the reform movement. Israel Jacobson, who lived from 1768 to 1828, is in many senses the grandfather 
of Reform Judaism. He created schools where Jews and Christians both attended and where Jews and Christians were prepared to live in this neutral society. And he has tasked, and later on people like Abraham Geiger, Samuel Holtheim in Germany, people like Isaac Mayer Wise and David Einhorn in America attempted to create a Reform Judaism that would be appropriate to this new cultural setting. But it is important to keep in mind that you had other thoroughly acculturated Jews, like Samson Raphael Hirsch, the founder of modern neo-centrist orthodoxy, who completely affirmed Western culture but wanted to retain an allegiance to halakha, to Jewish law. Hirsch described himself as growing up in a family in Hamburg that was called enlightened religious. Religious for him meant that they were observant of halakha in the ritual realms, but enlightened meant that they participated fully in Western culture. And then finally, you had a position that was adopted by Zacharias Frankel, who lived from 1801 to 1875. He was the father of positive historical Judaism, out of which the conservative movement arose. Modern Orthodox Judaism, conservative Judaism, and Reform Judaism all emerged ideologically out of the crucible of 19th century Germany. And my own fascination with that realm is to understand how all of these are expressions of what I would call, and my teacher Joseph Blau at Columbia called, modern varieties of Judaism. And in that sense, they do all emerge out of the same crucible. In contrast, you do have a counter-modernizing trend. There is a figure in Hungary named the Chatam Sofer. Chatam Sofer. The Chatam Sofer. Yes, if we were to do it more accurately. The Chatam Sofer. Some of you may have even gone to a Chatam Sofer synagogue. I belong to <laughs> Congregation Rotaf Sholem in New York. And it's the 175th anniversary of this flagship reform congregation. But today, actually, in honor of the 175th anniversary, they were taking everyone from the Upper West Side down to the Lower East Side to what today is the Chassam Seifer Synagogue on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was the original home of Rodolf Sholem 175 oh that's amazing. Years ago. That's a great American irony. That is. Well, Sofer, of course, who lived in Hungary in Pressburg, took a phrase from the Mishnah completely out of context, which asserts Chadash Asur Min HaTorah. Anything new, he interpreted it to mean, is forbidden by the Torah itself. And he took a negative position in relationship to modernity. He said that if Jews acculturate, if they go to secular universities, if they go to synagogues they where wear clothes. clothes, if they go to synagogues where sermons are delivered in the vernacular, if Jews do not distinguish themselves and become or live virtually a sectarian or to be even more accurate sociologically, if they don't live in enclaves where integration or interaction with the modern world is not limited, only to the extent that is necessary for economic survival, complete acculturation and ultimately assimilation would would emerge. It's ironic to think that if the Khatam Sofer were alive today almost 200 years later and he were to read the current Pew study uh-huh. and see that we had 
give or take 60, 70, 80% in her marriage rate, Sofer, I know, would say, well, what did you think I would told happen? You so, right. What did you think would happen once you began to acculturate? And in that sense, ultra-Orthodoxy is not a movement that I generally study because the ultra-Orthodox are counter-modernizers. That part is definitely true. And by that, I mean they're not like natives in an Amazon river basin. Modernity is about to encroach upon them, but they are completely unaware. People like Sofer, the people who live in Mea Sha'arim or New City in New York, perhaps even of Hancock Park in Los Angeles, they know all about the modern world and they want to resist its blandishments I do not tend to study those people. But, but certainly it is also true for them, even though they went in the opposite direction of total non-engagement, they nevertheless, just as much as orthodoxy, conservatism, and the reform, are fruits of the same crucible because they're asking the same question. They just came up with a, a different answer. answer. Yes, I think that's actually a very fair and good point. Yes, they do come up with an opposite sort of answer. By the way, they also have, to cite the work of Peter Berger, the great sociologist of religion, and in the interest, I don't know, of full confession, I should indicate that my own doctorate at Columbia was really in sociology of religion. And I was actually interested in the question of how do traditional religions respond to change, that they have a tremendous problem of social engineering. In other words, if you're living in Hancock Park or you're living in Brooklyn, anyone who has access to a computer knows that there are pluralistic options that are open. Anyone who walks down the street. You don't live in splendid isolation from one another. The ultra-Orthodox problem is social engineering. And there was a book recently by a Hasid from the New City area in New York entitled Those Who Go Shall Not Return, Shulam Dean. I don't know if you've read it, D-E-E-N. And he describes what it was to leave the ultra-Orthodox world. The point about tradition is that tradition should be understood as muvan me'elav. There should not be any other way to live in the world than the way in which you're presented it. But as Berger points out, the whole nature of the modern world is it falsifies the notion that there's only one way to dwell in it. So the problem the ultra-Orthodox have is how do you maintain these reality enclaves where your plausibility structure, if I can cite all of these fancy sociological terms, how do you maintain a plausibility structure? That's constantly under assault. That's constantly under assault. The problem we have who are the liberals. Is the inverse. Is the inverse. Their problem is how do you engage in effective resistance? Our problem, we've all agreed, we want to be accommodationists. Right. But how far do we accommodate? And once we decide that we don't want to go any further, how do we, how do we hold on? Well, that is a gigantic problem. In other words, our problem is where do you create the boundaries. And by the way, ironically, I mean, one of the things, again, that led me into this was having grown up in a community where there was a reform, conservative, and two orthodox congregations. One had a rabbi from Yeshiva University where men and women sat together. The other was an orthodox congregation where they did not. In the community I grew up in, it was sort of interesting. Anyone who was to the left of where my family was religiously was, and I won't use the terms that were actually used in my home, but I'll just say they were inauthentic. And anyone who was to the right was a fanatic. 
And most Jews tend to think, oh, where I am, that's just right. But if you look at it from a larger perspective, as a sociologist, yes, they all represent different points of response along a continuum. And when I used to teach at the college in L.A. and would do my Jewish thought class, when I would present different thinkers, I actually would not divide them denominationally. I'd put tradition over here and modernity over there and place thinkers on different points on a continuum of a spectrum. And that, I think, actually captured much more accurately what so many modern Jews are like. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning for adults and teens, including online courses, live video interviews, and enhanced podcast episodes with text and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to our podcast. What is the most useful message that Reform Judaism alone can make okay. to all this, this Jewish conversation? I think that is a great question. In a sense, the way in which I would even reword your question is, well, what is it that makes me a Reformed Jew? In other words, what is it that makes me think why, that? Yeah, why, why bother? Why should why, you be a Reformed Why bother? To my way of thinking, those thinkers who have identified as reform in our institutions best capture, and I need to be very careful in a postmodernist, non-essentialist sense, Reform Judaism comports more accurately to authenticity and truth than any of the other movements for me, and I'll explain why. I understand the logic of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy makes the assertion in one way or another that the Torah that was revealed by God to Moses at Mount Sinai, both written and oral, is in some sense affirmed or should be affirmed because it is really literally virtually the word of God. Samson Raphael Hirsch in his work Chorev wrote, the law both written and oral was closed with Moses at Mount Sinai. Orthodox Judaism does not have a problem with epistemology. By that I mean what's the authority that undergirds the halakha, Jewish law. Why should you observe it? You should observe it because God revealed it. They have a straight answer for the question. They have a straight answer. I mean, one other quote is that there is a quote from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the great leader of Orthodox Judaism in the 20th century, the leading halakhic authority, who wrote, even that which a veteran rabbi, Talmid Vatik, will teach before his student it was already revealed by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. You cannot change that. They have a straightforward answer. I do not think that position is correct, though I respect people who would affirm it, because from my own knowledge of history and my own study critically, which Reform Judaism embraces, part of what I learn is that Judaism evolves from generation to generation. If I were to quote even Mordecai Kaplan, Judaism is an evolving religious civilization. Or if I could quote David Allenson, the theology courses at the Hebrewian College are the history courses. Yes, that is precisely right. It doesn't mean we don't have theology classes, but history is the foundation 
upon which reform is based. So now that I've said that... So perhaps we could sum up your 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 view of orthodoxy that it, it is coherent prescriptively, but it is descriptively untenable. Yes. Because of my personality, and you know me well, I don't like to make such... That's why I'm here. Direct I, statements. I, 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 I would not disagree with that. So then we move into the liberal camp. I, by the way, think there are sociological reasons why you have a reform and conservative movement. My conservative colleagues would not completely agree with me. And I don't want to say that reform and conservative ideology are not identical. But for me, reform ideology is more coherent than conservative. But what both share is the notion that Judaism does evolve and change historically. Right. Whether it's Samuel Holdheim and Abraham Geiger or David Einhorn in the reform camp, or Zacharias Frankel in the conservative, or my friends Elliot Dorff and Brad Artson in the conservative camp today, all would say that Judaism evolves and changes historically. Reform Judaism, therefore, in taking this sort of critical historical approach captures for me the essence of what Jewish religious tradition is about, namely everything that I know about truth in the world teaches me that a reform approach that would talk about the fact that Judaism is always embedded in culture. If I want to describe a relationship that exists between God and Israel, the Hebrew Bible employs a term like Brit, covenant. But I know enough to know that the term Brit comes from the Akkadian root word Britu. So that it is interesting to me that the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Jews, in trying to describe, capture the relationship that existed, they felt, between them and their God, employ a term from the political lexicon of the ancient Near East to describe that relationship. Dibrat Torah Yoshon B'nai Adam, the Torah speaks in human language. And I think in every generation this has occurred. So therefore, I look back to the reality of Jewish tradition and its evolution. I have great respect for the halachic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, uh, in the first through six centuries, the medieval Jewish tradition, whether it be in Byzantium <laughs> or North Africa or Europe. But the way in which I come to look at it from my reform perspective is that I see it as an ongoing narrative where each generation of Jews writes a different story in which they attempt to capture what it is they feel that God commands in their age. For Jews in a pre-modern world who lived in an exclusively patriarchal culture, that meant that men alone had public roles of power and authority and women were excluded from those roles. I neither feel the need particularly to apologize for that or be proud of it, quite frankly. I know that apologetically, we in the Jewish community always try to say, and it may well be true, that compared to other cultures in the ancient Near East or in the pre-modern world, Judaism may have even had a more advanced attitude, a more inclusive attitude towards women than some other cultures, but I think it's more a matter of degree than really of kind. But if there's a classic halakhic text then that says a woman cannot serve as a witness, I can understand that in a patriarchal culture that would be the norm. In other words, that domestic roles are assigned women, domestic roles of honor, whereas public roles of status and authority are reserved for men. 
But it's not incumbent upon me in the 20th or 21st century to see that as authoritative in any kind of way. Namely, what Reform Judaism captures for me is the dynamic that marks Jewish tradition. And in this sense, I mean, I do borrow from the work of a legal philosopher, Ronald Dworkin, uh, in a book that he wrote, Dworkin, uh, Law's Empire. He uh, compared... Constitutional, uh, a constitutional scholar yeah. who taught at Oxford and at New York University. In any event, Professor Dworkin in this book, Law's Empire, that was published uh, by Belknap Press of Harvard University, he basically says that in any legal tradition, there's an ongoing narrative. One is required in order to be authentic to situate oneself, to plant oneself within that tradition and to be aware of the preceding chapters that have been written. He actually compares the legal system to a chain novel. In order to be authentic, one needs to know the previous chapter. But that doesn't obviate, it doesn't remove each generation's responsibility while situating itself in that past story to not write the next chapter of what that story would be. Now, doesn't Reform Judaism in its fullest flower have, have a more aggressive polemical position, which is not merely that we claim a, a reasoned authority to advance our civilization in ways that we know are different from the past. Right. But do we not also assert that every generation before us has also done that vis-a-vis yes. -vis the prior one to it? Yes, of course, we do say that. I mean, biblical Judaism is really, in my view, qualitatively different than rabbinic Judaism. The very fact that we have a term like rabbi right. to describe our religious leaders, that is not found in the Bible. It's a revolutionary uh, term. It's a revolutionary term. What occurred at Yavna in the first century when, after the destruction of the temple by the Romans, when Yochanan ben Zakkai affirmed, the great leader of the Jewish people and the Pharisees, that he would go to Yavna and open a rabbinical academy, and there we would sit and would study. The liturgy was established there. Our Bible was canonized there. I mean, I could go on and on. I see that every generation has taken some of that uh, authority upon itself. So I would claim that. However, if I were to look at the totality of Jewish history, I would say that you had a biblical civilization and some signal event at Mount Sinai that we call Revelation. Yavna represents, meaning the birth of rabbinic Judaism, another revolutionary major step. And we know that there were Sadducees and Karaites and this group and that group. Religious pluralism isn't brand new to Judaism in this day. And it's interesting, in the 19th century in my studies, one thing I have done is to look at the curricula of the different seminaries in Germany. So it was interesting that people like Geiger, who started the Hochschule, which is the predecessor institution to the Hebrew Union College had classes, for example, on Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes. That was a required class for rabbinic students, and quite clearly he saw that as a model for what it was that they were doing in the 19th century. But I would claim the following, that from around the beginning of the first century of the Common Era, through the French and American revolutions, the hegemonic part of Judaism was not halachic rabbinic Judaism. And what the Enlightenment ushers in 
is a challenge to a classical rabbinic notion that was, again, I use the term hegemonic, it was dominant for 1,800 years that begins to question whether rabbinic Judaism and halakha, therefore, possess the kind of absolute authority that they did before. Namely, what reform introduces in the 19th century is a different conception empirically for the basis, epistemologically for the basis for Jewish authority. So I don't diametrically disagree with you, but I would inject. Yes. I would recognize at least two much bigger articulation points than you were willing to grant in the period between the rabbis and the Enlightenment. And that would be philosophy, which epistemologically gets as much to the root of the matter as does anything else because it questions the source of truth itself. And then mysticism. Mysticism challenging the halachic regime of access to the fulfillment of the covenant and the epistemological roots of the authority of the Jewish proposal in the first place are really quite central to the target of, of... Let me try to argue it then in the following way. I would argue and agree that both Kabbalah, mysticism, and philosophy represent radically different ways of viewing the tradition. But here I borrow some of the work, frankly, of my teacher, Ismar Shorish, who, of course, was also the head of the Jew- Chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Chancellor Shorish, in one of his works on Heinrich Gretz, distinguishes what, between what he labels authority and medium. And this is how I would understand philosophy. His contention is halakha remains authoritative for Maimonides. Let's just use him as the example. He protests that it does. I'm well, not, I'm, philosophy the becomes... The fact that he has to protest so hard seems like he's protesting But he writes much. a Mishnah Torah and then the philosophy becomes the medium through which Judaism is explained. Part of what the 19th century does is that The medium through which Judaism comes to be explained is history, and authority becomes history. That that is, I think, a point that you and I could continue to debate. In regard to the mystical tradition, clearly it represents a radically different way of going about and regarding the tradition. And anyone who studies this, and certainly the Baal Shem Tov, neo-Hasidic writings, There are certainly antinomian elements in this. In other words, it runs counter to this halakhic hegemony. To the principle of of a legal civilization. Of a legal civilization. Having said that, though, the arguments, and this is what's different about modernity, the arguments that are put forth in that tradition are still drawn culturally from the text of the tradition itself. In other words, part of what marks modernity as unique in my way of thinking is that the arguments are taken completely historically from the non-Jewish realm. And that's why I'd argue that the 19th century ushers in a disjunction between past and present with which we're still attempting to deal. When I talk to our students today at the Hebrew Union College, while I am completely committed to history, they just open a text and they think, in my opinion, that the text speaks both magically in an authentic and almost an unmediated kind of way. In other words, all the historical points that I would make that I think enrich the meaning of the text are essentially 
I'm going to even use this term, kind of irrelevant to them. They might find some of the points interesting, others uninteresting. I mean, if I can ask you a question, you're the dean. I mean, do you find that among our students? I find that they have to be taught the relevance. This is part of our job at the Hebridean College. I do think that one of the primary gauges of our success will be how much do we bring them along to where you and I are, which is, of course, the right place. The right place, but yes. I do th- Just I, what I talked about before. Ex- yes. Exactly, exactly. Without any jingoism whatsoever. Not at all. self-satisfied. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time and having what I knew would be a purely pleasurable conversation <laughs> together. This- Well, no, go ahead. Just one point. This has been the best conversation I've had in this regard since years and years ago, (laughs) I should mention to you, Sandy Reagan's had a program on the Jewish television network That's entitled right. The Wissenschaft des Judenheims <laughs> Hour. Which was oversubscribed, no oversubscribed, doubt. Oversubscribed. <laughs> and I had an interview with Sandy. I had written a book on Osriel Hildesheimer and the creation of a modern <laughs> Jewish orthodoxy. <laughs> Sandy and I described it. I am positive at least 13 people <laughs> saw it. But I should tell you, there was a dentist who saw it who enjoyed it, who bought the book, and we had free dental care in Los Angeles for many, many years as a result of that television show. That is living Torah. That is living Torah. So (laughs) I don't know if I'll get free dental care as a result of this, but I am very appreciative. Okay. Thank you, David. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.